Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Contra International, a podcast exploring the contradictions of disaster capitalism and the movements across the world seeking to challenge it. My name is Ben Ray. And my name's Alice Kinghorn Gray. So Alice, the situation with China and the US, the so-called new Cold War, um, seems to be heating up. Uh, every week there seems to be new tensions ratcheting up. Um, new conflicts. Um, what what's your sense of the of the situation with China and the US at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a point of discussion that kind of heats up, cools down, heats up, cools down. It's it it's it's recurring, isn't it? I mean, there's an article by Chris Bambury recently on on Contour where where he puts forward the case that what we're seeing is something similar to the kind of um, uh, arms race and build up um that that we saw that's kind of reminiscent of Europe pre-1914 um we're now seeing it in the Pacific and South China Sea and the creating of military alliances um now I think that's a fair point um but there's a fundamental difference I think we need to also be aware of which is you know, 1914, European great powers were were pretty evenly matched militarily. Um, so there, there was a difference. There's an asymmetry there. Um, I don't think we're seeing something quite the same. So I don't think it's just going to play out in the same type of um, wars um, that, that we saw then. Um, and the quite frankly the US military strength just makes it at this point in time impossible to overthrow I would say yeah I don't know if the the banging of the drums are 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 quite at fever pitch yet um but mm-hmm. you know that doesn't mean to say that that what's going on isn't something we should be concerned about or challenging um I think Green war um has you know has been a key instigator of of these rising tensions because the world has kind of become more divided between the West versus the rest. The global South hasn't really gone along with the Western sanctions regime or, or the NATO plan uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, and China has been pulled closer towards Russia, although it still tries to maintain some distance. It was interesting that this week, Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, have both gone to to China. Um, the way I the way I assess that is, for France and for Germany, the EU's two biggest economies. China's their biggest trading partner. They can't afford to lose that. On the other hand, it's obvious that they're increasingly tied into the NATO US led geopolitical bloc, um, and they're trying to kind of smooth over that contradiction with Xi Jinping in in, in China. How do you see the, U, the UK uh, and China relationship in this in this current dynamic? I think we can speak to the UK's um, integrated review, uh, which sets out defence priorities, which was released a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, and it's it's a it's a contradictory picture. You've got on the one hand um, Rishi Sunak, you know. Um, reinvesting uh in the um organization the economic deterrence initiative um 
and you've got and the China capabilities program. So um, the funding had recently been cut and now it's been been upped again. Um, but then on the other hand, you've got um, a, 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 a more sensitive approach maybe to to the language use. So he he declined to to term China as a threat um, and opted for uh, a more um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's it's too subtle, but it's um, there. It's now one of the epoch-defining challenges. <laughs> so, um, which has angered the Tory backbenchers, the more the more hawkish ones, like Alicia Cairns, who's a chairwoman of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. So she wasn't too happy about that. But on the flip side, she's also on the board of um, one of these organisations, which has uh, received loads of funding, which she's also happy about. Um, so there's, there's, um, I think there's a, a more tentative approach um, coming from from the government. But at the end of the day, we're still the US's greatest ally. So we're going to be doing whatever the US decides to do anyway. So we've got Ho Fung Hung um, with us on the podcast today to give us some insight. He is a, a China expert. He's written three books about China. The latest one was Clash of Empires in, in 2022. Before that, he wrote a book called China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World in 2016. Uh, Ho Fung is a professor of political economy at Johns Hopkins University in in Baltimore in the United States. And um, he's going to give us a a lot of insight into into China, especially in the dynamics around the Chinese state and the Chinese economy. So um, let's get cracking. Ho Fung, thank you very much for joining the Quanta podcast. My pleasure. Now, in your book, The China Boom, you argued that China is like not really seeking a rupture from US hegemony because it was so closely tied into US capitalism's model of, of neoliberal globalization. And you said that China would at best be, quote, a new power in an old order. Given everything that's changed since 2016, you know, we've had dramatic changes in 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 in, uh, in global capitalism since then, lots of important events, Ukraine war, et cetera, et cetera. Has your analysis changed of, of China's role in the global system? Uh, I would say yes and no. That uh, as my latest book, uh, The Clash of Empires from China America to the Liu Cold War, point out, that uh, the current intensification of U.S.-China rivalry is very much similar to the U.K.-Germany rivalry uh, at the turn of the 20th century. So in the late 19th century, Germany rose as a new emerging uh, capitalist power, very much integrated with the U.K.-centered free market uh, global uh, economy. Uh, but after a while, that Germany uh, developed the ambition of having a larger uh, road and larger share of goodies in the global economy. Um, it is what uh, letting Thanos uh, in the, the imperialism as a higher stage of capitalism. He said that uh, these uh, new power when they rose, they will ride. They they usually first rode on the back of the old established power, but after a while that the Liu power would uh, feel that they deserve more um, share of the uh, exploits of the world. And then they will have a conflict uh, with the old power. And then the conflict developed. 
And then in the long run, that um, when the dust is settled, Germany is still integrated with the neoliberal global order uh, after its failure to topple the, the old uh, system. But in the turbulence that UK hegemony uh, unrivaled and then replaced by US hegemony. So in the long run that we don't see I still uh, stick to the argument that uh, China didn't represent a new alternative model or world order. So basically, China want to be uh, having a bigger say and bigger share in the export of the world uh, in the neoliberal uh, global order. Uh, just like uh, early 20th century Japan and early 20th century uh, and, and Germany uh, try to do. Uh, and there will be turbulence, there will be conflict uh, in whatever form that we will uh, see. Uh, but basically, China's uh, ambition is not to overthrow the neoliberal uh, global capitalist order. One interesting point to note is that in the February 2022 Xi Jinping and uh, Putin summit in Beijing, they issued a joint statement. In the strong statement, of course, that they uh, claim that uh, U.S. and its allies should withdraw from their own fears of influence in the former Soviet space in the case of Russia and South China Sea and, and, and Asia in the case of uh, China. But in that joint statement, interestingly, many people um, overlook that part. In the joint statement, they mentioned that um, Loud uh, many uh, power that is the U.S. is trying to resort to protectionism, even in the name of uh, fighting climate change, um, and then uh, they, meaning the China and Russia, in the statement saying that we need to stop it, we need to defend free trade, uh, and stop people from uh, uh, raising protectionism in the name of environmental protection. So you can see that they want both Russia and China want to have their political spheres of influence in their neighborhood. But at the same time, they very clearly know that they are the beneficiary of the neoliberal global capitalist order. And they are going to continue to uphold it and even defend it when US and Europe becoming more and more protectionist. Do you think, I mean, that's interesting because I think it speaks to the, the tensions and contradictions that exist in this relationship this interdependent relationship. Um, and I suppose no, nobody should be think, should be maybe kind of giving projections, but let's try anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, at different phases, there's it feels like there's a ratcheting up and that it, it serves domestic elites on both sides. And then it's like, but do you think that there's something structurally that's shifting that's increasing the likelihood of geopolitical flashpoints that are maybe more 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 serious in nature yeah i would uh, i would say that now we are really in the point of bifurcation and uh, contingency that any accidental move by either side can create some unexpected results uh, uh, so it is difficult to, to predict uh, how things will evolve but we can um, um, map out several possible scenario scenarios that uh, as uh, human actors or uh, progressive actors, what we can do is to um, uh, load the uh, condition of possibilities and then try to move the, the um, unfolding of event to a less deadly and more peaceful um, 
uh, direction. And, and one thing for sure is that uh, the U.S.-China uh, um, competitions uh, and conflict and rivalry uh, is going to intensify. It is very difficult to imagine they will um, uh, abate uh, because, uh, uh, again, as I point out in my latest book, The Clash of Empires, that basically the it originated in the intercapitalist competition between the corporations. Uh, so it is a competition over market share and controlled on the monopoly of technology. Um, and um, uh, it started after the global financial crisis in 2008. Uh, though at that time, uh, it didn't uh, manifest itself in a very overt form. Uh, but uh, if uh, we uh, are observant enough, we already see this kind of a trade tension already building up. Uh, and then uh, with uh, China's economy entering a long slowdown, uh, uh, and then the China's state uh, sector urged to um, expand its uh, companies market share in China's domestic market and in the global market, particularly in the developing world, in the Belt and Road, uh, increased. So it has begun a big urge to increase uh, market share at the expense of US and European and uh, the other foreign uh, developed countries, uh, companies market share. So this competition basically originated in this intercapitalist competition. And uh, there's uh, difficult to imagine that uh, 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 there's a, a swift uh, transformation that alleviates this kind of a contradiction. Of course, there are ways to do it. That uh, I always point out that uh, uh, it is very typical. Um, is again, there's a similar dynamics in the late uh, light team, early 20th century. It is overproduction crisis of major powers, and the most uh, effective way to address it is to is through. Uh, welfare policy and redistribution and to boost consumption uh, of uh, of the of the uh, lower classes uh, in different countries uh, but it uh, required a very uh, democratic system and uh, lower class access to political power to make it policy right now that we don't see in either in china or us and other major uh, uh, powers that has this kind of a uh, uh, structural condition for this major redistribution. And then without that uh, major uh, redistribution, um, then the capital and the state's uh, lateral uh, remedy to um, alleviate the, the, the pain of this overaccumulation crisis is to uh, uh, export capital and uh, get into a cutthroat competition with each other, eating away each other market share. So this is going to be uh, in the medium run, at least, is going to continue. The question is whether this intercapitalist competition would lead to, like in the early 20th century, world wars. Uh, that is the 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 cross the essence of the UK and German uh, competition is that the the capital in both country want to export their capital in the third countries in the in the rest of the world and compete for market because they are saturated in the domestic market. Um, and in the end, in the case of early 20th century, of course, it led to two world wars. Um, and now we are not at that point yet. So there is still chance that the conflict and the competition can be directed to other less deadly way. Uh, world war is still a, 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 a possibility as actually it is already uh, happening in the case of Russian invasion of Ukraine. It has something to do 
with that uh, the Russian economic crisis and the long-term uh, growth slowdown that uh, the regime entered uh, in past, and then so it led to the uh, expand, uh, and then so hence the kind of uh, uh, expansionist drive and militarist drive to invade Ukraine. And in the case of China, that if the Chinese economy continued to be stuck in this uh, quite mare of debt crisis and long slowdown, the regime need to survive and mobilize the nationalist sentiments and leading uh, China more and more to a conflictual path. It's already have some skirmishes with India uh, or across the India-China border. And in many South China Sea laboring countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, Vietnam, and, and definitely in Taiwan or across the Taiwan Strait as well. And then if any of these conflict escalate, that U.S. will be joining, Japan will be joining, and it can be quite deadly. But there is an alternative uh, possibility that this conflict can develop without escalating into overt war. Uh, and other thing that we're already seeing happening uh, today is that uh, the uh, political conflict between China and U.S. are now uh, also at the same time taking the form of increasing competition between the two countries and their respective allies in international organizations. Uh, they fight over the voting quotas in the IMF and World Bank, uh, and they fight over influence in the United Nations. And in the more recent uh, COVID uh, crisis, that they also fight over the, the influence over the WHO, that is international organization. So this is um, the kind of competition that... Uh, that, that so we see both uh, tendency. One is that move the, this competition leading to a, a military clash. The other tendency is that this competition uh, are also developing into this uh, competition in the international organization. So we are lucky right now we have these institutions, global governing institutions that can be an arena for these countries to compete. While in the early 20th century, that uh, the countries competing with one another, that uh, the most obvious way is through military expansion and clash. Uh, if uh, we could restrain the, the conflict between US and China, even involving Russia, uh, uh, to the competition uh, between these great powers within this framework of global governing institutions. So it might not be nice, it might not be, um, good at all, but actually it is still better than war. Um, and and uh, uh, and uh, it is better to have this country to uh, find more allies uh, to outvote one another in the United Nations uh, General Assembly. Better than this country finding allies to uh, to expand military and then to fight one another in the world war. So it is still a possibility that this conflict can uh, move toward the direction of a less deadly way. Thanks. I think it'd be good to look now more at the kind of domestic political economic situation. Um, be interesting to hear what you think are the defining um, characteristics of the relationship between the different facets of the Chinese state, not just the CCP and yeah. the economy, and yeah. then also a bit about the dilemmas which the CCP might be wrestling with at the moment. What contending forces are at play? Yeah, that actually it is a, a very important uh, point to note is that the uh, CCP and particularly Xi Jinping, with uh, we we hear a lot about Xi Jinping is centralizing the power a lot, even on not only to the CCP hands, but in his own personal hands. And then 
he is eliminating competing faction within the CCP and putting his absolute loyalists uh, in key uh, power position. So it is a kind of a thing, it's not new. I'm sure that Xi Jinping is actually looking at the Putin paybook that uh, Putin has been doing in the last 10, 20 years is that when Putin came in, the Russian uh, elite is divided into different oligarchs and then Putin basically eliminated the other uh, competing oligarchs to concentrate power into his own hand and his own uh, loyalist oligarchs. And so it is a centralization of this autocratic regime. Uh, and it is similar in, in the kind of uh, Europe transition from feudalism to capitalism uh, through the absolutist state. Basically, it is this monarch centralizing power to eliminate uh, independent power base of different aristocrats. So with what we see, this is Xi Jinping centralization of power, and then he eliminated term limits, so he theoretically and practically, he definitely aspired to become a lifelong leader, uh, is to centralize power into to, into his own hand. And, and in this wave, recent wave of political institutional reform that he initiated, is all pointed to this direction. And also he cracked down on... Uh, private enterprise and 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 expanding the state uh, sector. So uh, so it is a very typical response of autocratic uh, uh, state capitalist regime in an economic downturn. Uh, in the economic uh, boom time, that they that when the pie is expanding, that they are happy to share the uh, the thing with other elites when the pie is expanding. So everybody has a bigger share every year. But now the pie is shrinking. On the one hand, that uh, uh, dominant faction want to expand their share, uh, want to expand their pie uh, by eating up the, the share of other rival elites, so that uh, concentration of resources uh, into a few hands. And at the same time, uh, in the past, the Communist Party legitimacy rests on uh, the claim that it de it delivered the rapid economic growth and rising and uh, rising employment. And now the China youth unemployment is more and more serious, and uh, the young generation is more and more disillusioned. And we see this kind of uh, occasional outbursts of discontent, like the protests that end the zero COVID policy that out of nowhere it become very fierce and develop into slogans that call for the end of CCP rule. So it is very scary from the CCP point of view. So it increased its incentive to centralize power and tighten the control. Um, many people mistaken uh, and mistakenly think that the economic crisis or economic slowdown would spell trouble to autocratic regime. But when we look at the case of uh, Russian uh, system under Putin and North Korea, Venezuela, all this autocratic regime, when they end, uh, encounter a serious economic crisis, uh, they didn't collapse, uh, but they strengthened themselves by tightening the screw on the society. So... In many times, this kind of a long-term economic uh, slowdown or even crisis can benefit the, the, the autocratic regime if they play the game wisely by centralizing power and not uh, allowing any space for oppositions uh, to take advantage of the crisis. And Xi Jinping definitely is learning from that and doing it right now. Uh, so it is quite a dismal uh, uh, prospect that uh, China's system will... Uh, suddenly change direction for the better to become more open up um, and uh, uh, all point to that uh, already some um, uh, dissident voice within China is calling China is undergoing a kind of a law of colonization of the regime. 
uh, becoming more and more uh, controlling. And uh, I, I think it is where it is heading. Uh, and it talk about uh, common prosperity and the reigning on the big private capital. But ironically, um, Xi Jinping's common prosperity campaign uh, basically is talking about crackdown on capital without talking about uh, redistributing the the wealth and the profit of that capital being cracked down to uh, to the people. So it is basically, it's just like the absolutist state uh, centralizing power by eliminating the independent base of uh, competing powers among the aristocracy without benefiting the people. Well, Fong, it's... Uh, one of the remarkable things about China is is this massive growth in the working class and this massive growth in prosperity of the working class over the last sort of 20, 30 years. Often, in, certainly in, in Western history, what's happened after a major growth in, in the purchasing power of the working class is halted by a crisis. That is when people start to revolt because their expectations have grown much higher obviously in China, you have this huge inequality as well. What, what can you tell us about the class dynamics and the potential for kind of um, yeah. revolts and labor movements to emerge in China? Yeah, it's interesting that in the 2000s and 2010s, we see a lot of uh, the labor protests. Uh, many of them are uh, uh, sporadic and unorganized, spontaneous uh, labor protests. Actually, uh, and also rural peasant protests as well. And then these protests actually had some impact on the systems and on policy and then to urge the Chinese government to do some fine tuning of their policy, to uh, establish their new labor contract law and so on and so forth. But the Communist Party, uh, basically they, um, they developed uh, their revolutionary movement and later uh, managed to seize power by taking advantage of these rural and uh, labor protests. Uh, they know very well that this kind of a protest will not uh, threaten their rule so far as they remain disorganized. Uh, so in the 20s, 200s, and 2010s, uh, the Communist Party allowed workers to uh, spontaneously protest, but they cracked down hard on anybody who tried to organize uh, this uh, labor protest into a more sustainable and permanent uh, uh, labor organization structures. Uh, so they are targeting the intellectuals or the organic intellectuals who try to go to link up the mass and link up different uh, protests together uh, to form a national movement and even a national organization. So the Communist Party, because Communist Party itself in its revolutionary er era, that they 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 thrive by doing it. That is the the organizing going to the workers, and so they are targeting this kind of um, right lawyers, intellectuals, labor organizers, student activists who try to establish a linkage with the workers. So it is very successful. Uh, the sporadic labor protests still continue, but it's spontaneous. It is issue based. Uh, for example, the latest one is that is uh, the Apple factory for in Foxconn in North China who protests against the. Uh, restriction of the zero COVID that they try to impose zero COVID and don't let them go and but they have to be like detained in the factory to keep making cell phone and then many uh, of the workers protest and break the barricade and, and escape by themselves so we, we still see this kind of sporadic um, uh, spontaneous protest but it uh, it has a huge block to lack it cannot develop into a sustained labor movement that managed to change policy and 
uh, and the structure of redistribution in the long run. And in this uh, past five uh, years or so, we see this kind of a doubling down in the context of uh, economic slowdown. The Chinese government cracked down on these labor groups and many uh, people and actually scholars I know who run, for example, labor uh, resource center, affiliated with university and, and, and they, are, they are shut down. They are expelled from China. And there are some cases actually a few years ago, a lot long ago, that some uh, prestigious university students in China form a kind of a Marxist study group and they try to visit some workers and to know about their plight and situation and they were wrong and arrested. So we see that uh, with the economic slowdown and the uh, sense of insecurity of the regime, they are doubling down on this kind of crackdown on the intellectuals who try to organize uh, the workers while that this uh, spontaneous worker protest is difficult to, to totally uh, PM. But we will, uh, I expect that we continue to see this kind of sporadic uh, wildcat kind of uh, protest continue, but uh, the CCP will focus more of their attention on uh, cracking down on anybody who try to organize them into a movement. To go back to a kind of global and international relations angle and an and aspect, um, a lot of countries in the global south see China as an alternative source of finance and yes, investment yes, yes. to the yes, West. Yes, um, yes. So some point to less um, like IMF style yeah. demands, you know, um, yes structural adjustments that they've been yes. through to have yes, yes, yes. Uh, demolished yes. these these countries. Um, obviously, in the China boom, you're a bit skeptical about the idea that the global south would benefit from, from yes. China's growth and, yes. you know, that things might have changed now given the state of the Chinese economy. Yes. Obviously, it's not slowing as much as Western advanced yes. capitalist economies. Um, but it, it'd be interesting to explore a bit more of what, where your skepticism comes from yeah. in that regard. Yeah, on the one hand, uh, uh, I'm skeptical of China as an alternative uh, model of lending. And, and actually, you look at uh, the China-led Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB, they are exactly modeling off the World Bank, that uh, they hire a lot of ex-staff from the World Bank. And uh, I look at the data, most of the lending is co-lending with World Bank because uh, they want to save the resources on auditing the project. So they just lend let the World Bank audit this, this project. When World Bank green it, so they co-land uh, to the project together with World Bank. So the whole uh, structure is modeled after the World Bank. And uh, But at the same time, also in the China boom, I, I, I argue that it still can be a blessing to the global south because uh, even though their lending uh, criteria and practice is similar, uh, uh, it is always better if uh, any developing countries have more than one source of financing. So it is better if you are being sought after and then uh, competing uh, lenders are competing for your uh, for your application of a loan so that you can pay one against the other to uh, to get a better deal from either side and then you can uh, sometimes get money from China and sometimes get money from uh, from from the US led western led uh, institutions so you can potentially get better deal but of course that now we know that uh, uh, the, uh, the recent research looking at all these kind of a uh, contract loan contract uh, involving the China Bell and Road uh, lending 
uh, because they are secretive. Uh, it's uh, uh, in in the Western lending institution, we know what is the condition that. You're right that uh, the Chinese lending doesn't have the kind of condition that uh, you need to clean up the government, you need to do certain kind of market reform. They don't care about what policy uh, the, the borrower uh, uh, pursue, but uh, there are different kind of conditions of this uh, loan is that um, uh, uh, it is the kind of a procurement and uh, how they use the, the fund kind of condition that uh, research so that most of the developing countries who uh, borrow money from China. In the end, they have to use the money to hire the Chinese contractor to do the project and buy Chinese product. While the World Bank, Asia Development Bank, and traditional this multilateral bank and U.S. lending, they don't have this kind of condition. Uh, so they can borrow the money and then use the money to hire local contractor or third country contractor. Uh, it's more diverse pool of uh, uh, supplies and contractor in the projects funded by this traditional bank, but in many China projects, uh, the, the, the one estimation that 90% of the contractor funded by China project are Chinese contractor. Um, and it is a good reason for the Chinese government to demand that because the whole point about lending is to uh, absorb the excess capacity and the overproduction uh, of China. So it is a way to bail out the Chinese domestic firms, basically. Yeah, they're, Chinese... they're, they're addressing an overaccumulation problem yeah. that they have um, yeah. and externalizing that. Um, so, but, yeah, yeah. but they're not trying to rewrite how, you know, um, country's laws necessarily so you can also see yeah and then and then they're not going to like uh have a coup uh to try to change the government and things well like exactly that. yes maybe they want to do it but they not yet have the capacity to do it and, yes yeah <laughs> and, uh so it is another kind of condition that of course create other kind of uh, resentment that's uh the resentment is a lot like um the anti-imf protest saying that they are losing sovereignty because of this loan and then the government no longer can control their policy. Otherwise, uh, on the other hand, the kind of uh, the, the resentment and protest is about uh, uh, the the government of our country become in debt to China and it didn't create job for the locals. And because many Chinese contractors come and then they bring their own workers, actually they even don't. Interestingly, in Africa, there's a lot of case that uh, the Chinese companies, the Chinese contractor, uh, don't know how to deal with labor union, uh, so that they are very uh, wary of hiring local workers that are unionized. Uh, in Zambia and Tanzania, there's a lot of case. So in the end, that they uh, bring their own workers from China to work in these projects. So it creates uh, quite some resentment. Then in the end, the local economy, they in the end, they can have the stadium, they can have the railroad, but in the construction project, there's not much new jobs created for the locals. And in the end, the local government uh, is indebted. So it is another kind of uh, uh, resentment. But of course, that uh, the other the, uh, disadvantage from the point of view of Beijing, it can be seen as advantage uh, of the, the borrowing government is that uh, uh, now it's already recently, there's uh, very recently, there's a, a report coming out saying that uh, China has trouble getting the people to repay their loan, basically. Um, so uh, reluctantly bailing out uh, these countries and, and, and the, the, the reality is that even to Venezuela, that China has stopped lending money to Venezuela after Maduro refused to repay uh, the loans uh, that it has been indebted to, to China from many years ago, uh, so that China cannot enforce uh, this law 
that uh, there's a, a lot of talk about China may seize strategic ports and infrastructures as a collateral of the loan, but actually that uh, China still lack the capacity to do it. Is China is still don't have a kind of a military that like the U.S. military, U.K. military that have the overseas uh, projections uh, capability that they can really uh, go to top of government and, and instigate a coup in the old time during the Cold War, for example, or seize assets uh, in overseas. And China still in a situation that they lend money and people don't uh, repay and then there's little that China can do. Uh, so it is the kind of a thing. And then so in the last, after 2017, even before COVID, you see that Chinese external lending dropped very drastically. Uh, partly because of the Chinese own uh, economic problem, but also they become now more cautious in terms of uh, making this known now. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say it reminded me of even even you know years ago when when the it does leave other countries very vulnerable to the ebbs and flows of the Chinese economy because obviously Lula came to power yes. first time round with the boom yeah. of the Chinese the commodities boom yeah yeah and so yeah. then you know and and then obviously the the that meant that he could um initiate his proper program um yeah. of cash transfers and then you know yes, Brazil, yes, you yes. know and, and things change so yeah it, it it does open countries up to to that vulnerability too um yes. just 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 yeah. like just finally, uh, Ho Fung, I'm interested yeah. in what you think about the Western politics towards China now, because yeah. it seems like there's quite a big rise in anti-Chinese chauvinism yeah. in the West, yeah. which is partly connected to the pandemic and yeah. you know conspiracies about you know the China virus and yeah. and that sort of thing, and it's partly connected to the 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 war as well in Ukraine. I mean, yeah. I was stunned that. After Xi Jinping visited Putin, yeah. people in the United States now, politicians in the United States are talking about the access of evil again. I felt yes. like I was going back 20 years in time to you know yeah. the, thing of the Iraq war. Yeah. Um what 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 should the left be saying about China? Uh, yeah. how should it be challenging that Western chauvinism without collapsing yeah. into the, the other side mm. of yeah. you know celebrating the Chinese Communist Party or anything like that? Yeah, the 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 worst thing that can happen is that this kind of competition become racialized. Uh, the, that that happened very obviously under Trump administration. That is not only target the CCP regime and then the policy and the action of the Chinese government, but also, um, uh, ethnic Chinese everywhere in the world, in the U.S. and in, in in Europe, getting targeted, and then they are equated uh, with um with with with. China and the CCP, so it is a very bad direction and very very horrible uh, prospect of it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, 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 the Biden administration relatively doing a better job since um, uh, uh, gathering support of ethnic Asians and Chinese um, domestically in this competition of China and very make it and and they don't kind of. Uh, uh, try every opportunity to emphasize the competition with the regimes of China, and then, um, this competition can come that something good can come out from this competition if it is directed the energy to to a more healthy and productive uh, things. For example, in the Biden administration, is already using the competition from China as a kind of a. 
um, lot of as not an excuse, actually, there's a reason that uh, to actually uh, uh, to establish, uh, we established industrial policy and we uh, investment in education and, and in, in science and technology development. And uh, actually, we rationalized the supply chain uh, that in the 1990s, it is the corporation that is very eager to move um, to China and work with the Chinese regime to co-export the Chinese workers and then to, to throw the American workers out of jobs. And then now with this Chinese competition, then this kind of reshoring and uh, re-nationalizing the supply chain. So it is a kind of a positive change in many ways. That just like during the Cold War era, that this competition with the Soviet Union is one of the key impetus for all this social welfare reform and redistribution policy and investment in infrastructure, investment in education and science and technology. So so it is a, something good can become coming out of it. But we need to be very, very careful not to racialize uh, the, uh, the the issues uh, and and assuming all ethnic Asians or ethnic Chinese are with uh, the regime. I'm I am not naive and I don't uh, I'm not like many people who think that all the problems come from the US or Western part that if uh, the US and the Western countries uh, say and do things more nicely to the Chinese government and then things can get back to the uh, to the old days of uh, harmonious relations, uh, because part of the problem really come from also from the Chinese regime, that the CCP tried to survive a long economic slowdown. So uh, their natural response is to become more aggressive domestically and externally. And uh, it is one source of the problem. It's what uh, Germany underwent in the early 20th century, what Japan underwent in the early 20th century. So it is a kind of a structural problem that it is a kind of a challenge lot just a reaction to US or Europe, what 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 we did here, but actually they have the internal logic to make them do what they do, uh, uh, just like Putin uh, invading Ukraine. And, and, and so this kind of a um, thing will continue, even though that uh, US and Europe can go back to 1990s, very, very nice and, and, and uh, try to pursue harmonious. The, the, the thing is that I'm sure there's a lot of people in the elite, particularly the banking sector, really want to move the two countries' relation back to the good old days. But uh, the thing that whatever good gestures the, the, the Western side and US side show that the China respond with increasing aggressiveness. And as I said, that their aggressiveness is not a response to the US or the West. They have their own internal contradiction that create this aggressiveness. So it is going to here to stay that the question is how to steer the competition to a less um, racist and less racialized way and then to make it a kind of a competition between two regime and direct the energy to more healthy productive uh, activities like investment in infrastructures and jobs and education and social welfare.